0: Hi, I wanted to let you know that I have a brand new, totally free masterclass available and I'd love if you wanted to check it out. It's about an hour long and it goes over three simple things that every dog owner needs to know in order to teach a dog quickly and easily without pain, force, a major time investment or fancy equipment. When you register, you'll also get a free 20 page ebook all about what I call the dog training triad. You can find it at anniegrossman.com/masterclass. Now for something completely different. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. So Mark Twain, satirist of uh, the 19th century, one of my favorite writers, wrote the book A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. and. It's a story about, uh, it's a time travel story about a a guy who uh, gets bonked on the head and wakes up and thinks at first that he's in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but actually he's gone back in time from the 1800s to King Arthur's Court and he's in Camelot. He gets himself into trouble there. He's gonna be burned at the stake and then he realizes that He had learned in school that in the year 528, the year that he found himself in, there was a solar eclipse. So he predicts this natural event and uh, he makes everyone believe that he caused it. I think about this book sometimes when I'm thinking about the process of adding a cue to a behavior that we uh, we want our dogs to know. Now, uh, before I before I first went to dog trainer school, <laughs> um, I referred to commands. You gave your dog a command, and the dog followed the command, or not. It would have never occurred to me to call it anything other than a command. Instead, I was encouraged to think about how we can cue a dog to do the thing we want. Now, at first I understood the reason as um, like we don't want to be coercing dogs and it is coercive if you're commanding something because it's like you're saying do this or else. There's an implied or else. And, you know, that made sense to me, but I also thought that, you know, it would be possible to command and then reward, so maybe it was just uh, too narrow a reading of the word command. But then I started to understand that the notion that we are commanding a dog to do something really gives us way too much credit. We are sometimes cueing a dog to do something, perhaps on purpose, but perhaps not on purpose, and it would be funny to call that a command. Dogs do things all the time because of things that we do that we might not have uh, actually wanted our dog to do. You wouldn't call that a command, but it might be some kind of cue to your dog, if your dog is perceiving it. What's more, there are lots of cues that your dog is perceiving that have nothing to do with you. They are learning cues from the environment all around them, from each other, from things we might not even be perceiving. We can also use cues to help dogs Really, ideally, that should be the whole idea of giving a cue or a command is that we're trying to get dogs to do something that we want them to do most likely for their own good. And it's true that we don't usually think of the word command as being something that has much to do with uh, helpfulness. Like, I don't say to my husband, I command you to do the dishes, it would be really helpful, I'd really appreciate it. We can use cues to help our dogs be safe and happy in the world that we're asking them to live in because a cue is really just a piece of useful information that can help your dog understand what is wanted and what is going to happen next. Now you're probably wondering what any of this has to do with a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Well, the process of adding a cue can sometimes look a little bit like magic to those who are looking on. This is because you're going to be adding the cue when you know the behavior is about to happen, and especially at first, This can give the illusion that you are the one causing the eclipse when actually you just were able to predict it. Except the thing you'll be predicting is maybe just your dog's bottom hitting the ground and not the moon going in front of the sun. So for instance, if you're gonna teach your dog to sit, let's say you're using a a clicker or a marker word, The first step is just to wait for your dog to sit. Be very boring, don't be in a very stimulating environment, and uh, don't let your dog see that you have the treats on you. What's going to happen? Well, eventually your dog is probably going to sit or lie down. And whichever one of those things your dog does, you're going to click and treat reset your dog so that your dog then has the opportunity to do it again. This is capturing and this is positively reinforcing the behavior of butt hitting the ground without you even asking for it. This is such an important step in training. We want our dogs to think that they have figured out how to get what they want. You know, oh, all I need to do is uh, plop my butt on the ground and uh, the human clicks and treats. Step two is where we can start to tell the dog what we are going to call this behavior. Now, in more like traditional training, this might be where the or else stuff comes in. So usually you would imagine someone right away saying to their dog, sit and then pulling up on their dog's neck until their bottom gets to the ground. Or saying sit and then pushing on the dog's butt until the dog sits. Or, you know, at later stages, maybe just saying the word sit, 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 nagging the dog until the dog sits. All examples of getting the behavior using negative reinforcement. Reinforcement because the behavior of sit is being encouraged, uh, but it's being encouraged because something—it's uh, making the annoying uh, butt pushing go away. It's making the person stop nagging you to sit. It's making uh, the pain in your neck go away. Uh, that's why it's negative. And this fashion of adding a cue, I don't know if fashion is the right word, but method, uh, this traditional way of uh, adding a command, let's call it, I also think of it as a kind of midwifing. I I think that's like a term from psychology, where it's like you as the teacher or a therapist or whatever like you're pulling this behavior out of the dog you are creating this behavior uh, and to be honest I think it just like overcomplicates things when you think about how we as people learn to understand cues in our environment all the time you realize that um, it can actually be a rather simple process of Uh, making associations that then give us information about what to do or what not to do. Now there are lots of cues that we learn all the time that help us live the lives we live. Language is just a a very advanced kind of, of cueing, giving each other information using these these complex oral and written symbols. And sometimes these cues are kind of like commands, right? I stop at a red light because there's a big or else if I don't. I mean, even a green light, it's not like you may choose to drive now or you may choose to stop, right? Even a green light, there is an implied command, go. But there are plenty of other times when uh, there are cues that we might choose to ignore based on what our uh, prerogative is at the time, right? Somebody might yell, lunchtime everybody, and you decide to stay at your desk. You know, all throughout France, they have these green crosses whenever there's a pharmacy. And I always think, oh, that's such a nice, subtle, and clear cue that if I need toothpaste, this is a place I should go right now. But I don't have to go in. I'm just being given the information that may help me choose what I'm going to do. Now that is not to say that when we are teaching cues to our dogs that they are optional, but two things. One, it's possible to get a dog who responds to the cue that you want your dog to respond to nearly 100% of the time without using this sort of or else style training two you do want your dog to be making some choices for himself with service dogs there's something called um, trained disobedience with the idea being you know you don't want to cue your dog to do something dangerous you know if you're blind you might not see that there is a ditch right in front of you So if you cue your dog to move forward, you don't want your dog to obey that cue no matter what. You want your dog to use some judgment. You want your dog to make the choice that that's not actually a good idea. Just like you are not controlled in some robotic way by the green light, there might be times where even though the light is green, you're going to stop in the middle of the street so that you don't hit a kid on his bike. It's like we are giving the animal the best possible information about what to do and then we're trusting our animal to make the best possible decision about doing that thing. A lot of the time we lure our dogs and then that lure ends up becoming the cue. and Luring, you know, it could also be prompting, you know, not necessarily being about using food. For instance, when I first uh, started training my dog uh, using a clicker and adding a cue in this way, I realized that I could get him to sit just by kind of leaning forward a little bit. And it really didn't matter what I said. I could have said popsicle stick. He wasn't even paying attention. He was just looking for my subtle little lean. And you probably have things like this with your dog too. A lot of people reflexively hold their fingers over their dog's nose to get the dog to sit, as if they were pinching food in their ha- in their hands to hold it over the dog's nose. It's we call it like getting 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 stuck in treat land. You are doing this motion long after your dog actually needs that lure, but you're. Your dog has learned that the cue for sitting is you holding your hand in this way. Think about what cues you're giving with your body. It can be useful to record yourself or to ask someone else to observe you when you cue your dog using cues that you uh, regularly do. And, you know, another thing about a cue is that you shouldn't have to repeat it. So to go back to our example of clicking a dog every time he sits, the process of adding the cue is going to be that you're just going to start to be attaching the word or whatever your cue is. A cue doesn't have to be a word, but in this example, your word, your word sit, you're going to say sit when you are pretty sure your dog is about to sit it's important to have first got that rhythm going of knowing that your dog is going to sit 10, 12 times in a minute before you start inserting the word. Because remember, this is not about you eliciting the behavior with your words. It's simply about you attaching the behavior to this new word. By saying the word and then rewarding the behavior that was gonna happen anyway, just like that eclipse. When you when you start adding a cue, you probably wanna think about adding cues to behaviors that you know uh, your dog is going to uh, do. And in a way, I think that it's very similar to how we learn languages. It's useful if you are very familiar with how to do something or familiar with a certain object before you uh, learn what that object is called or what that behavior is. So, you know, for example, if you're learning how to speak Spanish, you are probably going to start by talking about waking up in the morning, something you're very familiar with doing, Or with words like you know shoes, kitchen, food, drink. You don't usually learn a language by starting by talking about abstract concepts or objects that you rarely encounter. In fact when you're talking to a very small child this process can feel really intuitive. So you know my daughter Uh, is uh, she's about 18 months and I've been trying to teach her the word nose she can't speak yet but I wasn't going to introduce the word until I had her pretty reliably touching her nose which I was able to do pretty easily by uh, having her mirror me and uh, making a big deal about it when she when she did touch her own nose. Only after she was reliably touching her nose would I start saying nose. If she had no idea what a nose was or where it was, or if she had no idea how to touch it, I probably could have said nose over and over and over again and it wouldn't have uh, had much meaning. But now I'm able to attach it with this very specific behavior that I've built. I sometimes give my clients the cookies in the kitchen example. If I had a foreign exchange student who didn't speak English in my home and I was trying to get him to learn the word kitchen, I could say the word kitchen over and over, I could push him into the kitchen. Or I could put some cookies in the kitchen over and over to make sure to build the behavior of him going into the kitchen. Then as he was going into the kitchen, I could say kitchen. And again, for someone looking on, it might have seemed like I was predicting the eclipse, but actually I had just built this behavior. I knew it was going to happen. And I was in the process of communicating to my learner what this behavior is called. Once you have attached the cue to the behavior, then uh, you want to start giving the cue at moments that are not so uh, predictable and work towards the step of your dog having a behavior under what we call stimulus control. Once your dog understands what the behavior is called, you want your dog to engage in that behavior when you ask for it and not engage in it when you don't ask for it or when you're asking for something different. Now, of course, different behaviors are going to require that you work to different levels of stimulus control. It's 100% fine, or most of the time it's fine if my dog sits and I haven't asked for a sit, right? But I do want him to sit when I do ask for it. Um, However, uh, it's a behavior that does not have to correspond to a cue being given by me. Again, there are environmental cues that might cue him to sit. For instance, you can teach a dog to uh, sit at a curb. The curb itself can become a cue or there might be cues in the environment that I'm not even perceiving that to him indicate that sitting is a good idea. Um, But then, you know, there are certainly other cues you might teach a dog that you don't want your dog engaging in uh, on their own. You know, if you have an attack dog, you want to have that behavior under very, very good stimulus control. I wanted to mention, of course, that dogs give us cues as well. It's not a one-way street. And one really great thing about good dog training is that you can teach your dog to give you cues that you're okay receiving. You know often dogs learn to bark their head off when they're hungry for example or if they want to go out or whatever. Barking is a good cue to the humans that hey there is something that I want or maybe it's really a command. I'm gonna bark until, <laughs> until you give me what I want. But we can teach dogs to give us more appropriate cues. You can teach a dog to sit nicely on her bed when she's ready to get fed or to ring a bell when they wanna go out or to bring you the leash. I actually taught my dog to bark when he wants to come inside. I have a little back deck area and uh, it's great. He does not bark and bark and bark. I taught him that one bark is enough and just like we don't want to have to repeat cues. You want your dog to understand a cue well enough and to have the behavior uh, be have enough of a reinforcement history to be worthwhile to your dog, you don't want your dog to have to repeat cues that uh, that he's offering you. So when my dog barks once outside, I make every effort to drop whatever I'm doing and get him right away so that he understands that one bark really is enough. So to summarize, you only want to add a cue to a behavior that your dog clearly understands, that your dog understands that engaging in this behavior will net something good from you. So focus first on getting the behavior you want before you focus too much on adding the cue. You can certainly often add a cue from the beginning or fade kind of like a fade a cue into a lore if you listen to the episodes that I've done on teaching sit or lying down I talk about how to fade a a cue into a little bit of a lore and then get rid of uh, that lore and there are times where I like adding a cue right from the beginning but I am always thinking first about getting the behavior that I want, making that behavior worthwhile before I'm turning too much of my focus to the cue and making sure that the cue is, uh, is um, being paired in a way that the dog understands. Also, I should mention, you know, you have to pick a cue that your dog is going to understand. Um, This might might seem obvious, but, you know, if you have a deaf dog, you're not going to want to use an oral cue, you're going to want to use some sort of visual cue. If you have a behavior that you're working on that is going to be something you're going to want your dog to be able to respond to at a great distance, then you're probably going to want to use a cue that you will be able to give at a great distance. And you wanna make sure that you're adding cues to behaviors that are going to be happening a lot and that are gonna be enjoyable for your dog. Think about the cookies in the kitchen example. Much easier to add that cue than the we're going to the dentist cue. Or the it's time to leave the dog park cue. Anyway, lots more that could be said on cueing, but I just wanted to use this time to talk a little bit purely about, about the word cue, which I think we covered, and um, to touch on how to add a cue. And maybe we could do a future episode on getting stimulus control and really proofing cues. Although, you know, one, one quick thing I'll mention that's maybe a little bit more advanced is that you can give a behavior that already has a cue, you can give it a new cue. The trick is to always give the new cue first and separate it from whatever the old cue is. You know, I really like teaching behaviors uh, with both a visual cue and uh, a verbal cue, but I think it's nice when they can be given separately rather than together. And often you can just separate uh, you know if you have for instance a sit cue where you move your hand and say sit at the same time many people do this you can work to separate those cues by giving one of the cues say the word pause and then give the other cue or if you need to give them both at the same time if that's the cue that you've built uh, you can do that but give the new cue first whatever that new cue is, and your dog is going to learn to anticipate the next cue, which is the known one. Just a funny example I just thought of of how sometimes we try and get behaviors by giving the cue in a way that actually doesn't make that much sense. I've been putting my daughter on her little potty and trying to get her to her business there, and I put her on it, and then I go like making a peeing sound, and now when I put her on it, she looks at me, and she goes Psss. So rather than teaching her to pee when I make that noise, I've actually taught her to just sit on the potty and make the noise, which, at least, is pretty cute. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com.